Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1. Listen now to God's word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, My name is Matt Anderson. I'm the associate pastor here at Resurrection. And for those of you wondering about my tight haircut, uh, yes, in this season of social distancing, I do indeed cut my own hair. Uh, so there you go. Something I never thought I'd do and perhaps something I never should do. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And, you know, as you watch this on Facebook and YouTube, I'd be curious to hear in the comment section the things maybe that you found yourself doing in this season that you never thought you'd do, you know, because you're bored in the house and you're in the house bored. bored you know, anyway, before I dive into things, I, I want to ask you to help me out with one little thing this morning. Uh, today is the birthday of my, wa- my rock star wife, Sally, and while I love being able to embarrass her just a little bit on days like this, that's much harder to do when none of us are in the same room as her right now. And so can I ask you at least to just join me in singing happy birthday to her right now, just where you are again, like Dave says, be weird. Uh, so, all right, here we go. Dave's going to join me as we sing happy birthday. One, two, Three, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Sally, happy birthday to you. Thank you so much. And you know what? If you want, shoot her a text today too. Her cell number's in the church directory. Send your warmest wishes, your thoughtful words, ridiculous gifts, uh, especially ridiculous gifts. And I know some people pronounce it GIF, but that just sounds silly to me. So I refuse to say it that way. But it's her birthday. Happy birthday, babe. I hope you're blushing just a little bit. Um, 
on another birthday note, my birthday is also coming up this coming Thursday. And every year on my birthday, I run my age in miles. And so this year, I'm going to be running 39 miles on Thursday, a marathon and a half. And I do it partly because I love to run. And as crazy as it might sound, spending half of my birthday running actually sparks joy in me. But I also do it to raise money for Ace in the City, who, if if you're newer to Resurrection, Ace in the City is our church's primary partner in work that serves the South Minneapolis community. In fact, the partnership between Ace and Resurrection, uh, right now, we're in the midst of transforming and renovating our basement into something that will be called the Center of Belonging. And if you want to hear more about that project, just go to aceinthecity.org. But if you're on Facebook, you can go to my profile. You'll see that I've created a fundraiser trying to raise $3,900 for Ace in the City on my birthday. And that would be a daunting goal anytime, but it's especially daunting given the challenges that everyone's facing right now. So if you're in a places where finances seem impossible because of COVID, what I'm saying doesn't apply to you at all. But if that stimulus check was just extra cash for you that was going to get socked away into savings or blown on a new TV, please consider giving even just a couple bucks to that fundraiser because ACE's work is as important now as it ever has been and your support will make a difference. All right, I promise this sermon isn't going to be all self-serving and shameless self-promoting. So moving on. Uh, Last week, we officially wrapped up our time in Mark's gospel, which began right after Christmas and culminated last Sunday at Easter. And yet, while we may have completed our journey through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, today's text reminds us that the story didn't end at Easter Not hardly. In fact, in many ways, the story was only just beginning. And as today's scripture continues the story, I also think the text has much to say to us in this season of stay-at-home orders and heightened uncertainty about our own future. So let's dive in. Uh, We're transitioning authors today, moving from Mark to Luke. And we're reminded of that fact right off the bat as Luke begins Acts with a reference to his former book, which as you might have guessed, is the gospel of Luke. From the very beginning, Luke's gospel and the book of Acts were meant to be read as two parts of one whole. Acts isn't meant to be viewed as like a sequel to Luke's gospel, but rather a continuation of its story. And as I said a moment ago, one one could almost read all four gospels and get the impression that after the resurrection, there's nothing left for us to do. I mean, Jesus took care of it all. The story, in essence, is finished. He did all the heavy lifting, all the work's been done, so we just get to sit back, kick our feet up, and enjoy the fruits of God's new creation, courtesy of Jesus. But the book of Acts, or or, or perhaps more helpfully, the Acts of the Apostles, is here to remind us that Jesus' death and resurrection set in motion an entirely new work to be done. Or or more accurately, a brand new phase of the work that God has always been up to in our world. And it's a work that God has always invited humans into as his partners. And so the book of Acts is especially fascinating because it recounts for us the first baby steps of this newly formed or, or reformed people of God that we now call the church. And so as he kicks off the book of Acts, Luke offers a three sentence snapshot of what Jesus was up to in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. 
And, and just a quick note there, it's always fun to point out this kind of thing, but if you spent enough time in scripture, you notice that there are certain numbers that seem to pop up over and over again in scripture, like the number seven, or as in this text, the number 40. And these numbers generally aren't just cute coincidences, there's significance behind them. And in scripture, the number 40 is often connected with a season of preparation. I mean, think of how Israel's 40 years in the wilderness prepared them to enter into the promised land. Or how Jesus' 40 days of fasting and being tempted in the desert prepared him for his public ministry. And now, in in this instance, how these 40 days are used by Jesus to prepare his followers to carry on the torch after he leaves. And so Luke recounts that during the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, Jesus offered many convincing proofs that he was alive which I think is a strong reminder, Luke has no interest in Jesus' resurrection being understood merely as some sort of spiritual but not physical reality, like some theologians argue today. Rather, God had truly raised, physically, bodily raised Jesus from the grave. As Paul later argues in 1 Corinthians 15, the good news was good only because Jesus was, in fact, alive again in the flesh. That's what resurrection means. And Luke here tells us, that there were many convincing proofs given that Jesus was alive again, as alive or you, as you and I are today. Uh, now, Luke also reveals what Jesus talked about post-resurrection and that it was really no different than beforehand. Luke writes that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was always the center of Jesus' teaching from beginning to end. And yet my guess here and really this is only a guess, is that Jesus' teaching about God's kingdom took on a new vibrancy after his resurrection. That the substance of what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God didn't change after his resurrection, but that the events of Good Friday and Easter completely shifted how people would now hear and finally understand Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God. You see, prior to his death and resurrection, Jesus could talk until he was blue in the face about how God's kingdom was built on things like loving your enemies, laying down your life for others, being a servant. But it's clear that at least initially that went over the heads of the crowds and even over the heads of Jesus' disciples. And yet now, I mean, having seen Jesus willingly lay down his life on the cross, suffering unjustly, praying forgiveness over his enemies, offering grace to those like Peter who had abandoned him in his greatest moment of need. After seeing all of that, you have to believe that something finally started to click in the minds of Jesus' followers. And so Luke tells us that Jesus leveraged those 40 days before his ascension to cement this understanding of what God's kingdom was really all about. And and soon we arrive at a moment in Luke's narrative that bears at least a passing resemblance to our quarantined existence today. Because while there was no pandemic involved, Jesus gives his disciples their own stay-at-home, shelter-in-place order. Jesus tells his disciples that they must stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, we got to remember that the disciples had just witnessed and experienced the most mind-blowing history-changing event the world has ever known. I mean, they must have been itching to get out and spread this incredible news about the kingdom of God and its resurrected king. But Jesus tells them to wait. 
to stay at home, that they can't head out until further notice. And, and Jesus didn't give them a clear timeline either. You know, he didn't say something definitive like, the spirit will come on you in exactly two weeks and then you can head out. No, they were given a vague timeline and perhaps we can appreciate now better than ever the restlessness the disciples may have felt in that season of waiting. And yet, even though our situation today is obviously radically different in so many ways, I think we can still learn something from how the disciples handled that period of confinement and waiting. I mean, what did they do in that season of their lives? They had no internet. So, you know, it's not like they could do what we're doing right now and stream Peter's preaching out to the crowd for the, the world to hear the good news. And they had no Netflix to distract them. So no Tiger King. I mean, can you even imagine? So what did they do to pass the time? Well, if we just fast forward to verse 14, we find our answer. Luke tells us that the disciples, the women, Jesus' family, they all joined together constantly in prayer. They prayed. Not because that's what Jesus told them to do while they waited, but something within them helped them discern they should leverage their season of waiting as a time devoted to prayer. Now, pastoral confession time, prayer's always been a fascinating thing to me because it's so dang hard to pin down. How exactly does prayer work? Like, I get the basics. Obviously, I know how to pray. It's, it's a conversation with God, but does prayer change things? And if so, how does that work? Are, is there a certain prayer threshold that we need to cross before something can happen? I mean, is God unable to act without my prayer? I, I'm certain that's not the case. And yet if God doesn't need my prayer to act, why do I pray in the first place? Do I do it simply out of religious duty or obligation? Do my prayers somehow change God's mind? Like, it's not that God wasn't able to do something without my prayer, but maybe he's not willing. I, I don't think that's the case either. Or do I pray because in the famous words of C.S. Lewis, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. I mean, is prayer primarily about cultivating intimacy and my connection with God? So many questions. And maybe this is a, a hashtag pastor fail, but I truly don't know exactly how prayer works. And I don't know if anybody really does, but I do know one thing for sure. Scripture calls us as God's people to pray. I mean, there's no denying that. In fact, from my purely anecdotal perspective, prayer seems to be the central spiritual practice in all of scripture. From Moses to David to Isaiah and everyone in between. I mean, look at the Psalms. An entire book of prayers at the very heart of scripture that has formed Israel's book of worship and informs our own worship. Prayer was so central to Paul that he went as far as to urge us to pray without ceasing. And the Gospels depict Jesus as praying almost constantly. It's clear that there was a deep intimacy with God that was displayed in Jesus' prayer life, which is perhaps why prayer is the one thing the disciples explicitly asked Jesus to teach them how to do. And no matter how we try to understand prayer, there's no denying the vital place that prayer should hold in the life of God's people. And back to the matter at hand, in this place of waiting, Jesus' followers weren't twiddling their thumbs. They weren't passively waiting. They were praying. They were connecting with the heart of God, doing vital work that would better prepare them for the tasks ahead. And, and I'm reminded here of perhaps my favorite quote from Martin Luther. 
whose prayer habits were remarked on by many. And Luther once famously declared, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I mean, listen to that again. I have so much to do today that I will spend the first three hours in prayer. I mean, in our busy lives, carving out even three minutes for prayer can seem impractical, but three hours? And yet maybe Luther and the first followers of Jesus had tapped into something that we may be more prone to miss in our fast-paced, productivity-driven culture. Maybe we can learn something from them. And while we might not be able to pin down the exact ins and outs of how prayer works, the example of both Luther and the first Jesus followers reveals a belief that prayer strengthens us for the tasks that God gives us like nothing else can. Prayer gives us the strength and wisdom that we need to do God's work. And so before we move on, I I, want to take one last moment to just pause and, and reflect on our own personal prayer lives. And, and please note, this isn't meant to shame you if you rarely ever pray. I mean, quite honestly, I still often struggle to, to cultivate a vibrant prayer life. But in this season of staying at home and waiting indefinitely to be released from that, it wouldn't be a bad thing if we all drew some inspiration from the example of the earliest Jesus followers and devote some of this time to prayer. And if we devote ourselves, maybe we'll find the necessary strength, wisdom, and peace that we need for the days ahead and for the work in front of us. Okay, so getting back to the text, Jesus had told the disciples to wait until he sent the Spirit, at which point then they were to go out into the entire known world to spread the good news. And again, the disciples weren't given a clear timeline by Jesus. They didn't know how long they'd be waiting, but they were given a sign to watch for, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts marks an increased and intensified focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In fact, most theologians see the Holy Spirit as the chief character driving the book of Acts, even if much of the Spirit's work is behind the scenes. And though many of the texts that we'll be reading moving forward won't explicitly mention the Holy Spirit, Luke is making it clear that the Spirit is the animating force behind all that the early church and the modern church will ever accomplish. So now let's turn to the ascension. And I'm going to spend the last few minutes of our time focusing on one particular element from Luke's account. But first, just a quick note on the ascension itself. Uh, The primary image that we should picture in our minds from this account is not like one of Jesus as some divine Superman flying off into space. Rather, the point of the ascension is that because of Jesus' liberating victory over sin and death on the cross, that Jesus has now ascended to the place of power at the right hand of the Father. It's Jesus' ascension to the throne. Jesus is beginning his reign. That is what the ascension is all about. It's not about being amazed that Jesus is miraculously flying around or something like that. But then here's what I really want us to draw our attention to in this text. I love the question that the angels pose to the disciples once Jesus has ascended. Do you remember what they ask? They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Basically, why are you just standing around? What are you waiting for? 
And in fairness to the disciples, I mean, I'm sure this entire scenario came as an unexpected jolt, as a shock to their system. Like, wait, Jesus is gone? Like, he's expecting us to be able to do this without him here? And as I tried to get myself into the shoes of the disciples in this moment, I I can remember when Sally and I were sent home from the hospital after having Jordan, our firstborn. And for the first couple of days of his life, you know, we're at the hospital. We have doctors and nurses caring for him, caring for us, making sure his vitals looked good, that he's getting proper nutrition, having healthy bowel movements, giving us insight into things that we need to understand about properly caring for an actual little human being whose existence depends on us. But then just like that, we get discharged from the hospital. We're escorted to our car. They make sure we knew how to strap Jordan into his car seat. And then they just left us. And, I, and before we drove away, I just remember thinking, holy cow. I mean, they're leaving us to do this on our own. They think we know what we're doing, that we're capable enough to keep this child alive for more than a day or two. I mean, I don't know if I've ever felt more nervous or unqualified in my entire life. And I'm sure that's a mix of what the disciples were feeling in that moment too. Like, wait, we're supposed to do the kingdom work without Jesus leading the charge here? He thinks we'll be able to do this? That we're capable? That we won't get his kingdom project off the rails before it even really gets going? And so they just gaze into the sky. I mean, perhaps hoping that maybe Jesus was coming right back. Like maybe he just needed a quick heavenly snack or like they're playing some sort of kingdom version of punked on them. Uh, but they just keep gazing into the sky, waiting for their savior to return. And, and I like to envision Jesus seeing all of this from heaven being like, come on guys. Okay, Michael, Gabriel, could you just head down there right now and, and get their heads out of the clouds, put them to work, remind them that they've got this. The Spirit will empower them. They'll be okay. And so I picture the angels kind of quietly slipping in alongside the disciples who are completely oblivious to their, their presence. Jaws still on the floor. And, and the angels finally break this minutes-long silence just with a little, <clears throat> Men of Galilee, what are you looking for? Why are you standing here staring into the sky? Which again, must have been a jarring back to reality moment for these disciples. But I draw our attention to this interaction because I believe the angel's question is one that the church should ask of itself in every generation. What are we waiting for? Let's not be caught standing around looking into the sky, waiting for Jesus to swoop in and do all the work for us. He has already accomplished the most important task, the definitive work has already been done, but we have still been given work to do. And the easy tendency can be to just wait on Jesus, to say he's got this, to focus so much on our hope for his return that we neglect the vitally important kingdom work that he has tasked us with in the meantime. I mean, the well-worn phrase of being so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good applies here. Our connection to Jesus and our heart for his kingdom should always drive us further into the heart of the world, just as it did for Jesus. I mean, if our faith causes us to withdraw from the world or to shrink back from doing the hard work and the messy work when the world is in such acute pain, then we know we've gotten off track. And I I recognize that there's an inherent tension in what I've highlighted here that between the importance of the disciples praying and waiting 
and the call to get their heads out of the clouds and get to work. But maybe, I mean, just maybe, living in the midst of that tension is exactly where we're meant to be as Jesus' disciples. We get too heavenly-minded, and we run the risk of forgetting that Jesus taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth and that he's commissioned us to do this kingdom work. Our faith isn't for our benefit first and foremost, but is meant to be a healing balm for a hurting world. On the flip side, if, if we just go running into every burning building like chickens with our heads cut off, thinking we're the saviors of the world, not only do we risk more, doing more harm than good, but we may unwittingly disconnect ourselves from the very source of our empowerment and our identity. We may think it's all on our shoulders and forget about the work Jesus has done and is doing. And that tendency is probably more common in, in a culture like our American culture where we value productivity over almost everything else. We need to remember Jesus' words to Martha, who was busy doing the good work of being a hospitable host, but who missed that the better thing was to sit at the feet of Jesus. And so ultimately we need to do both to wait and pray, and to go and do. We need to be a people who recognize that we have so much to do that we must first devote a significant amount of time and energy to prayer, to connecting with the heart of God. And yet we also need to recognize that when Jesus draws us in, it's so that he can then send us out, that there is work he has given us to do. And so just as I earlier invited each of us, myself included, to reflect on how we view and practice prayer, I'd now like us to reflect on where we might be tempted to just look into the sky, to disengage from the problems in our lives and in our world, and just wait for Jesus to swoop in and fix it all. I, I wonder if sometimes Jesus' response to us is the same as the angels after the ascension. Like, why do you look into the sky? You can be the answer to that prayer. And remember, Jesus never calls us to do the work on our own. He is with us, always, empowering us by his spirit that dwells inside each and every one of us. And so, sisters and brothers, in this strange season of waiting that we find ourselves in, and in this time where the pain and brokenness of our world is being felt so acutely, May we take our cues from today's text. May this be a season not of lost time, but of deepened prayer. May this also be a time for us to ask how Jesus might be calling us as his people to be the answer to many of our prayers. And ultimately, may we experience and rely on the indwelling power of God's spirit to do the work he has prepared for us. Church, God is with us and the world needs us. What are we waiting for? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us alone, that while you have called us to do great work, great kingdom work, uh, it is not by ourselves, that even though we can't see you, you are with us. Your spirit dwells inside of us. You have given us what we need for the tasks that you call us to do. And so, Jesus, may we find how to live well in that tension of both prayerfully staying connected to you and always being in that posture of connection with you, but also recognizing that when you draw us in, it's so that then you can send us out 
to be a healing balm in this world. And so Jesus, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the ways that your spirit creates in us an identity as your church. And again, may we be the people that you have called and created us to be. In your name, amen.